Hello and welcome to another edition of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is your host, John Jantz, and my guest today is Robert Green. He is the author of the New York Times bestsellers, The 48 Laws of Power, 33 Strategies of War, The Art of Seduction. Um, and we're going to talk today actually about a book he's got coming out, uh, his next book called Mastery. It's his fifth book, uh, and he goes into the biographies of great historical figures for clues about gaining control over our own lives and destinies. So, Robert, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So, um, some of my listeners, uh, I, I do want to talk mostly about mastery, but some of my listeners may not be familiar with, with your history and, and going back to right. uh, the 48 laws of power in particular. Um, I, I did a little research on that. It looks like it sold about a million and a half copies, have <laughs> been translated in uh, several dozen languages. Um, here's a quote from Fast Company, called it a mega cult classic. Uh, another quote from New York Times uh, noted that 48, po- uh, 48 Laws of Power turned Green into a cult hero with the hip-hop set, Hollywood elite, and prison inmates alike. So um, I, I guess it would be safe to say that that, that that book changed a lot of lives, maybe including yours. Well, yeah, it certainly changed mine. I was sort of a struggling writer in, in Hollywood at that point, and... Uh, uh, no longer there anymore. It's opened up a whole new world to me. And yeah, I mean, I could, uh, there are a lot of different people. Um, I believe the book has helped in many different ways. Basically, I think it's something we all understand. You, you come out of college and you do go to college. Um, and no one has sort of given you a, a guidebook or a map to how things operate in the real world. Yeah, yeah. In fact, and, maybe they've intentionally led you astray, in fact. <laughs> yeah, probably, more than likely. Um, and, uh, and you're not really prepared uh, for what confronts you. You're not prepared, you know, for the 48 Laws of Power, you're not prepared for the the political games that are played, the maneuvering that people go through, the egos that are involved. And you're kind of uh, blindsided by it all, and you get emotional and you make mistakes, and these mistakes cost you valuable time, and they set you off in weird directions that you never intended to go, and it can ruin your life. So the book was meant to give you um, some control and some clarity about how people operate in in the real world, you know, and I don't mean to overemphasize the negative part because there are a lot of great people out there who cooperate, but there are a lot there are some who aren't and they can be dangerous and you need to sort of have your eyes open to some of these laws of power. Now, as I recall, 1998 is that right about when it came out? So, yeah. Is that right? Okay. And that as I recall, um it was a bit polarizing too, wasn't it? Well, I expected it to be a little bit more, actually. Um, there were some people who were quite, who were upset at the uh, the way I wrote the book, which is pretty honest about uh, how these laws operate. So, for instance, there's one called uh, Get Others to Do the Work But Always Take the Credit. <laughs> and I'm not personally advocating that you go out and do that. I'm saying... This is what happens in the real world, particularly when you're starting out in a job. People take your work and they put their their name on it, and yeah, it, yeah. you have to be prepared and ready and know how to deal with it. Some people feel that it's that that shouldn't be common knowledge that I shouldn't be writing and telling people about this. I don't know why. <laughs> um, and 
you know, uh, it, it was polarizing, but I think a lot of people understood that, that this is really what goes on in the world. And, and yeah, you know, you have to be kind of an adult about it. Well, and I, and I think a lot of books that sort of reveal the truth kind of stuff, um, I think I, I think the, the misperception a lot of times is that you're trying to teach people to do this when I think that, you know, obviously there probably are some people that could pick up a book like that and say, oh, now I know how to manipulate. Uh, but but. I think the probably the greater lesson is that, you know, the reality of this is going to happen if you're a 25-year-old starting your first job in a big corporation, you know, learn how to deflect these things. Exactly. Um, I had a law in there about uh, how to, uh, you know, create a cult-like following. And I'm trying to show you that uh, a lot of people in politics and business use the same kind of strategies and tactics that are involved in, in creating a cult. Um and it could be dangerous. I'm obviously not advocating you go out and start your own cult. There's a level of, of irony in there or, or <laughs> crush your enemies totally. I'm not telling you to go out and crush your enemies, but this is something that certainly is an operating principle for companies like Microsoft uh, when they were dealing with Netscape or Google yeah. and they're operating now. So you, you, need to be, you need to be realistic about what's really going on out there. And, and, and one last question on uh, 48 Laws. Um, has anything changed the last 14 years that's made it either less or more relevant? Well, of course, we're, we're going through tremendous changes right now. Um, and the changes I'm sort of are what I'm addressing a little bit in my new book. But, you know, in, in some ways, um, we're living in a world that's increasingly competitive and, and globalized. I, I maintain that more and more people around the world are playing for power. Um, and it's much more decentralized and there's just many more areas of competition out there. And so when, when, when things become pressurized and competitive, the political gamesmanship only increases. Um, and so uh, there is a disconnect, I think, uh, between the books that are written about management and leadership and you know, all of that and with what people's real experiences are going uh, um, dealing with all of this in the world. So in some ways, I feel like what I was talking about in the 48 Laws of Power has only become more heated and more relevant, uh, more relevant than ever and will be in the years to come. So, so let's move on to mastery. Um, and and yeah. if I can sort of give the really, really short version, it, it is a, your study of mo many, many biographies about kind of more or less what people that the, – the, the pattern actually and pathway to power that, that, that you studied and, and kind of put the pieces together and said, hey, there is a, there's a commonality. Uh, was that uh, – obviously you're going to expand on that for us, but with, is, is that an accurate brief description? Well, the – Yes, it is. The thing is, I also uh, I, I went through the biographies of the greatest masters in all fields, science, business, etc. And I also interviewed nine contemporary figures who might consider masters, um, people like the great architect Santiago Calatrava or the, um, a the tech entrepreneur Paul Graham mm -hmm. or um, the uh, uh, Temple Grandin, whom a lot of people might know, had an HBO special on her. Um, and basically, uh, I just think that, that these people who've mastered their field have a, have a higher form, <clears throat> excuse me, have a higher form of intelligence um, that gives them incredible power. And basically, what happens, this, this power that you have when you've mastered your field is a function of 10 to 20 years of incredible levels of experience, uh, practice, of experimentation. 
And when a person goes that deeply into their field, they gain a kind of a, a feel, an intuition, uh, an intuitive grasp at everything that's going on. Because the problem that we're all facing is that the world is very complicated, and we have we're dealing with so many levels of information uh, that that uh, can be quite overwhelming. And once, when you reach a point where you've mastered your field, you don't have that sensation of being overwhelmed by all the information, by all the things that are going on. You have mastered the field. You have a much wider vision of everything that's going on. And you have this energy that I consider is, is the most important thing that you can possess in this world, which is creative energy. You, uh, with all of your knowledge, you're able to make associations and connections between ideas that other people don't see. And so in this world that we're living in, where we have incredible access to information, and there are no longer political and social barriers that used to keep people from mastering a field that was only something you know, white men could basically aim at, all these things have gone away. We have so many more possibilities. This should be a, a time when we see more and more masters, when it's possible for you to aim at, and I'm giving you kind of, as I did in the 48 Laws of Power, the roadmap to mastery and how it can really, really up your game to, to something incredible. Are there some very common uh, you know, misperceptions about how somebody gets there that, that, that in, in effect you're debunking? Yeah, the most common idea is that uh, a lot of these people, uh, you know, we could take someone in, in our contemporary world like Steve Jobs, is that someone like that is just born uh, with some sort of gift. Their brain is wired differently. They have a natural talent, and, you know, gosh, I don't have that, and, and, and there, there's just something special about them. And I, I, you know, going through hundreds of these biographies and stories of these people. It's not the case at all. They're human beings who went through a very elaborate process, an apprenticeship. Um, in the case of Steve Jobs, the first years that he had at Apple and then with his company Next, where they're more than human, where they make mistakes, um, where they're, they're learning along the way. And then after so much experience, they then have uh, incredible amounts of power that look so awe-inspiring to us, but are actually the product of, of years of, of learning. So the good news is that it has nothing to do with the intelligence that you were born with or your education. It has to do with your motivation, the love that you have for your field, your desire and your levels of persistence to go through a process of 10 more years of intense study and practice, that's what leads to mastery. And so it's actually quite a hopeful message. I, I, I don't know that you kept a spreadsheet uh, or anything of this nature. Uh, how, how many um, actually struggled with the traditional nature of school? Well, it's a great question. You know, it's pretty much, a, I, I would say, uh, 70 to 80% of the people um, that I profile in the book, um, historical and contemporary, either did not do well at school, did not like school, or never even went, or never even really had much formal education. Um, and the reason is um, these are generally people um, who are very self-motivated, and they don't have the patience um, for a very 
a rigid, regimented environment. You know, Albert Einstein would be the classic example. Um, a person that I, that Paul Graham that I mentioned, who has that company Y Combinator, which is valued at now about five billion dollars. He, he was a computer engineer at Harvard and got his PhD. So he obviously, you know, did well there, but he hated it. Mm. He he hated the, polit the political gamesmanship, the waste of time. And um, a lot of people from that learn a lesson that uh, they have to get what they want on their own and they're going to, you know, sort of follow their own path. So I'm nothing against education. Um, I think it's really important. I have my, uh, my degree and I'm glad I do. But it's not the, it's certainly not the be-all or end-all of success in life. And really, your level of motivation and energy are infinitely more important than your, your degrees of education. Well, and, and I guess the reason I asked that question, because I think that, that your answer would seem to suggest that the traditional school system and society in general can actually be a hindrance to what you're describing, because... You know, the society says you're going to go sit in this room for six hours a day and you're going to learn history and math and science and whatever else we tell you. And well, or, or, you know, you, you, the question comes and say you want to be a writer or you want to be a business person and you go to school to become a writer or you go to business school. You'd be much better off actually starting your own company and having it fail. Uh -huh. And what you learn in those couple of years is going to be ten times richer and more practical than what you get in business school. If you want to be a writer, take going to Columbia or a writing program is going to be pretty much useless compared to just sitting there and writing and writing and trying to get it out there. So it's really your practical experience, your hands-on practical experience in the real world that, that counts for much more. And it's interesting to note that things people are waking up to this. And there's like a trend, for instance, in law school. Yeah where they're now sort of cutting out the third year of law school and letting you take that year and actually go get some practical experience in the world is, you know, so much better for capping off your education. I, it, I definitely am a believer that the practical hands-on education is what's going to make you successful in life, not not your MBA. Uh, another thing that I am certainly struck with is, I mean, you, you start off with this, that they, they had this intense love or attraction to something, a particular yeah. subject. And, and I think, I think a lot of people have that and they intuitively kind of get that. But, and it's, and I think in a lot of cases they think, so if I go into a field that, that allows me to do that, everything will be great. And one of the things I was really struck with was the, the amount of practice, I guess, uh, is, a, is the word, and experimentation. So these people didn't just love what they did. They, they, they actually saw it as something they had to get better at. Um, and, and I think that's a, a really key distinction. Well, you know, they, they, there's the famous 10,000 hours that yeah, we all right. sort of know about. And uh, I go into that, and I and, and then I even say that for mastery, we're really talking about 20,000 hours. I mean, look what happens after so much experience. Um, but to, in order to uh, amass that many hours of training, and that can be Einstein in, in physics, or it can be Thomas Edison dealing with electricity and inventing things, you actually do have to have a fair amount of love of the subject. So if you're going to law school because your parents told you right. that your real love is making things or something else, you can have those, those hours, but you're not paying deep attention. 
you're not really focusing. You're not really practicing the way you should be practicing. And you'll kind of fake your way through your 20s because you, you can do that when you're young and you have all that energy. But eventually it catches up with you. So it is a, a mix of things. And just exactly as you point out, you do actually need to really be connected to the field that you choose or at least as connected as possible. But you also have to be disciplined and patient. And if you do love what you're learning, it's easier to be patient and to go through the drudgery um, of, of practice and learning skills than if it's something that just has no personal connection to you at all. Uh, another pretty prominent theme was, in, in many cases, how early or how young um, many of these folks were. Even by the time they were starting to be considered bastards, they were still pretty young. Um, so if I'm 20, 30, 40, I happen to be 50, uh, you know, is it just over for me, or can I wake up and re- read a book like this and say, you know what, I, I, you know, I have this passion I haven't been following, and now I'm going to pursue it? I would put the cutoff age at about 70, I think. Okay. Um, so so know, there's still hope, still time for me. Okay. There's still hope. <laughs> um, essentially, uh, you know, there's several ways to look at this. Um, it is better when, you, when you're discover more or less what you want when you're younger because just truthfully young when you're younger you you have uh, you're able to focus more deeply you don't have all the distractions generally of a family and etc right, right. Um, and your mind is more open and fluid and so a lot of the great masters like an Einstein or a Mozart um, they started quite young and that's sort of a lot of their a lot of their brilliance but then there's other models out there. There's not just one pathway to mastery. And there's a model that I sort of followed, and there are people that I profile in the book, which is you don't really know exactly what you want in life. You have a vague idea. You pursue several different career paths. You have several different jobs. And then suddenly it becomes a little clearer and more clear. To me, it wasn't until I was in my mid, you know, 36, 37 years old, and now with all of that experience that you have and you've learned three or four or five skills, you're now able to bring all those skills together with all of that experience and really do something unique and interesting, a new business or whatever it is. And so I have plenty of examples of people who find their way in their 30s and 40s and, and even in their 50s. And I talk about Benjamin Franklin, who was one of the quintessential masters, and this man uh, had the mind of a 20-year-old when he was in his 70s and 80s, mostly because he kept his level of excitement and curiosity. He had the mind still of a child. So a lot of it is your ability to, to be, keep a sort of a youthful attitude and be open to new ideas. But, you know, as I said, maybe 70 years old would be the time when maybe it's a little too late to start hoping for mastery. So um, you read a couple books, and uh, so I'm going to ask you the hardest question probably of the day. Uh, in addition to mastery, uh, if somebody said, what, what are maybe three other biographies or, or other works, period, that, that would also go along with and, and be kind of nice companion reading for this book? Well, I mean, it, it's, it's a little hard to say because uh, I, I really, I, I'm not being uh, disingenuous here, but there were very few books out there that were kind of, uh, that were similar to what I was trying to promulgate in this one. Uh, you know, you can compare it a little bit to Malcolm Gladwell and his book Outliers 
and even his book Blink. So you know, you could you could go there. I think um, the Steve Jobs biography uh, is an excellent excellent example of mastery and action in a very contemporary setting. Um, and uh, the, the biography of him is, is really good. And, mm-hmm. you know, he wasn't maybe the most pleasant person to be around. But, <laughs> that came out. Uh, yeah. my, but, uh, you know, who cares? He, he created one of the most important companies that exists right now. Um, you know, there's uh, I, the, the various um, biographies that I read, uh, you know, Thomas Edison by Matthew Josephson, a biography written in the 1950s. Um, there's a new biography of Henry Ford that I read. I'm, I'm sorry, the name is escaping mm-hmm. me. It's in the bibliography of my book, so you're mm-hmm. going to have to go buy the book. To get All right, that. good, good. Um, you know, I, there's a, a great biographies of, of Leonardo da Vinci, who's mm-hmm. sort of the the uh, kind of the icon of this book because he mastered so many different fields. Yeah. Um, you know, I, 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 I would basically start there. But unlike my four, the Forty Eight Laws of Power, there's no sort of one book that inspired it. Which in that case was the Prince of Machiavelli. This was sort of this is sort of my own uh, cooking together of all these different elements. Would you say that? Uh, and again, if you look at the various folks, you know, you mentioned Jobs. You know, wasn't always the most liked. But again, you know, is there a price for master that, that people? Uh, a human price, a societal price that people pay for you know getting to that level. Well, it, it can be, and it can't be. I think it depends on the individual. I think Steve Jobs sort of brought his inner demons uh, to the work world. I mean, he was very much driven and a perfectionist, mm-hmm. and that was sort of the force of his power, and it made it maybe often difficult to be around him. But uh, a lot of the people, uh, even some that I interviewed, uh, such as Paul Graham or the uh, the tech engineer Yoki Matsuoka, these are very delightful people, uh, I maintain, actually, that mastery is really also a path to, to uh, um, happiness and fulfillment in life because we all have the drive, the, the need to sort of express ourselves, to do something that's creative, and we do it through our work. And when you are doing something that you love, you don't feel like it's work. It really connect your whole person, your whole character becomes involved emotionally and intellectually and physically. And it's, it's deeply, deeply satisfying to go through that process, to realize you can break past limitations that you thought that you had before, and to kind of explore new possibilities. So there's a pi- price you might pay um, in the hours, uh, which you're not out there like partying away. But if, when you reach your 30s and 40s, and you set the foundation for mastery, it's incredibly satisfying. So I think the price is, is well worth it. I am um, actually just beginning work on my fourth book, and I, I read something that you wrote that uh, I really related to, and that was your description of the process itself being exhausting and that, that even a, a number of authors, you know, you, you or books that you've picked up, you can almost sense that the author ran out of gas. And um, I, I think that uh, I don't know if you want to talk about uh, or, or, or even I know you're I know you've written a great deal about that process. But I wonder if you, you just you want to talk a little bit about that. And then and then, well, you, know, you know, we'll wrap it, up by by telling people where to go to read the whole thing. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, a post 
uh, a blog I posted on my website, which is powerseductionandwar.com. The and is spelled out, powerseductionandwar.com. Um, but it has there's a lesson uh, for all of us. You know, I, I the the book it, it took, takes two or three years to write. There's uh, hundreds of books of research, uh, the the interviews with the contemporary right. masters and the transcripts and all of these different note cards. And it was mostly um, a problem of organization. Mm-hmm. And um, I think we all uh, face this situation um, where we have so much information that we're all dealing with in our lives that it's exhausting and it can drain us and we lose a sense of the larger picture. And what I've learned in writing books, and I think actually a lot of writers don't know this or understand this, is I've learned to focus constantly on the bigger picture of the overall message that I'm trying to impart. I spend a lot of time organizing the material so that that level of thinking and organization is reflected in the book so that when readers come to it, it's clear. I'm not repeating constantly chapters or I don't have chapters that that don't make sense. Everything flows logically because... I took the time right. to organize the information that I have and uh, to think constantly of the larger picture of what I'm aiming at, the purpose behind it. And uh, if you let yourself become overwhelmed by your information, uh, it can exhaust you, and the work really reflects uh, your your lack of organization, and, and it becomes, uh, I maintain, making your work as organized for the for the public or the reader as possible is actually the best thing you can do for people. It's like a service you're providing them. And uh, I, I'm a deep believer in it. And if it, it, it was an exhausting process to write, but um, there's a perverse part of me that enjoys that it's kind of like running a marathon. And when you reach the end, you feel kind of proud. Well, and, and, and you certainly, I mean, you know, you, you tackled a subject that, that, uh, could have gotten out of control pretty easily, I think, uh, uh, just because of the vast amount of you know research or, or subject matter you could have brought to it. Well, you know, the way I looked at it is how can I write a book on mastery if I haven't mastered the subject? Yep. If the subject is overwhelming me, then, wow, what, a, what how ironic. Yeah. And it, it was not easy um, to get to that point. Uh, but but near as I progressed and as I got towards the end, I really did feel like I understood something really elemental and important. Uh, and I think I discovered um, the the one simple key uh, to mastery and success in life, which if I can summarize very briefly, it's the fact that all masters um, keep uh, a sense of their uniqueness, mm. uh, what it is that made them different from when they were when they were children and they felt themselves attracted to a particular field or a different kind of activity. And they're aware of what makes them special and different. And they keep that connection throughout their lives. And so when they make a, create a business or write a book or come up with some invention, it's a reflection of what makes them different. And I maintain that the greatest danger you face in the career world right now is the fact that you're replaceable. Um, as you get older, Someone else is going to come along um, that's younger and less expensive be- because, you know, there's other people who can do what you do. And the trick in life is to figure out how you what you do no one else can do. 
And that's to me sort of what mastery is all about and what all these people have in common. And this idea came to me after kind of years of work and, and mastering the subject itself. Well, that's a brilliant place to uh, to end our conversation today, and it's powerseductionwar.com. Is that right? Did I get that right? Power Seduction and War. And War. That's right. Sorry. And War.com. And I, and I know that you've uh, – obviously you can read more about this book, uh, uh, previous works. Um, you've got some special offers uh, for folks that want to get in and pre-order now and maybe even pre-order a, a few extra copies uh, to, to share. This is one of those books that – you know, probably if you could get uh, uh, get your mastermind group together and uh, and work on it, would be a great book to work through. It's also a really good Christmas gift. Too. There you go. All right, Robert, uh, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, look forward to mastery uh, and getting into it myself. Well, thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be on your show. All right, take care. Thank you, sir. That was great. Is that it? Yep, that's it. that's it. We're done. So I, I, I really appreciate it. That was a great interview. Oh, well, thank you very much. And then when are you going to air it? I, I'm actually, uh, the book is, uh, I, I want to air it near launch date. So what's that, like two weeks? Uh, well, the launch date is the 13th. Of November. So, uh, right, it'll definitely be in that week. Okay, very good. Okay. Thanks so much. And uh, send, send me a link or so, and I'll oh, put it on, we, on, on Twitter and Facebook. And we, sh- we sure will. Okay. Thanks right. so much, John. Bye now. All right. Bye-bye.